the book of Philippians chapter 1, if you have your Bible. We've been going through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and we've been taking it section by section, and now we begin in the latter part of verse 18, which is where we left off, if you would look there with me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I will not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come to you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus, we humbly pray that you will walk and work among us today in a special way, in a powerful way. Father, that you would take our minds and our hearts away from the things of this world. No doubt every one of us, Lord, has burdens. Every one of us has concerns. Every one of us has troubles that we're facing this morning. We have plans, things that we want to do. But I ask you as humbly and sincerely as I can, Lord, that you will draw our minds and our hearts and our attention to you this morning. Even if it be for just a few moments, Father, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, Open our ears to hear your beautiful voice. Soften our hearts to receive your message today. God, I pray that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word, that you would anoint me, your servant, and that you would anoint these servants gathered with me today to hear. All to the glory and the honor and the praise of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I want us to think about the observations from this text this morning under the heading, Magnify Christ. Magnify Christ. The predicament that Paul is in at the time of this writing, as we know, Namely, he's in prison. 
has led the Apostle Paul to a crossroads experience in his life. Will he be released from prison? Will he be executed? What is going to happen to the gospel? Paul's in prison, one of the gospel's greatest proclaimers. What, what's going to happen now? If Paul is executed, then what? And so in these verses that we have read this morning together, Paul proceeds to pull back the curtain, if you will, of his heart. And what is revealed is the core of the passion of the Apostle Paul. What makes Paul tick is revealed to us as he pulls back the curtain of his heart and reveals the core of his passion. And he reveals in verse 23 and 24 the tension that he feels in his heart when he says that he would rather depart and to be with Christ, which would be far better for him. But the tension on the other side is that it would be better and more necessary for him to remain in the flesh for them to the effect that their faith would be advanced and the effect of that advanced faith in Christ would be an overflowing joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the dilemma that we're faced with with the Apostle Paul this morning. And so if you recall from last week in verse 18, Paul had been dealing with this issue of people who were preaching the gospel. They were preaching Christ from bad motives. And we learn that Paul says that in any way, it doesn't make any difference to him, if Christ is preached, if Christ is proclaimed, Paul has made a conscious decision of what he's going to do, and what he's going to do is rejoice. The way that you make the Apostle Paul happy is to preach Jesus, to proclaim Christ. And his magnificence is what makes Paul happy. But as we continue through these verses this morning, uh, I, I, want to, I want to just encourage you that the numbers that are here were added much later. <laughs> they weren't originally there when he wrote this letter. And so Paul has not really broken a decisive, decisively his train of thought, but rather it's progressing on in the verses that we've taken up this morning. And what Paul is going to continue to do is to reveal the ground or the basis for his continual joy. This irrepressible joy in Jesus Christ that keeps bubbling up in his life and in his writing. As he writes and he talks about problems, he talks about difficulties, he talks about challenges to his own personal life and ministry, to the advancement of the gospel and to the church at Philippi. He cannot help it. It just keeps coming back up and coming back up, this irrepressible joy. And so I want us to think about the basis or the ground for Paul's continual joy in three ways. The first way is through his deliverance. The second way is through his expectation. And the third way is through his demonstration, his deliverance. If you look there in verse 19, he says, For I know... He's confident of something. I know that this, this predicament that I'm in, this circumstance that God has providentially brought me into that is in the prison walls, 
I know that this predicament that I'm in will turn out to my salvation. And the word salvation is not the way that we typically use the word in church today. The word is better rendered deliverance. I know that this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Because the way that we typically use the word salvation today is in a spiritual sense. In the ultimate sense. If you've come in here this morning, it doesn't make any difference what difficulty or problem you are facing. The greatest issue for you is not about that circumstance, but about this question. Are you saved from the wrath of God? That is the biggest issue to deal with today until you have that settled with God through Christ. That is the biggest issue. Are you this morning saved in a spiritual sense or are you spiritually blind and deaf and dead to God? But that's not the way the Apostle Paul is using this word. He's saying this is going to turn out for my deliverance because he's thinking about his immediate circumstance of being imprisoned. He's thinking about the possibility of him either being released or being executed. And so the question becomes, what deliverance is he talking about? Is he talking about his release from prison or is he talking about the ultimate deliverance in the presence of Christ? If you think about the way that this text unfolds, if you think about the way that it progresses on and what Paul continues to talk about in the verses that we read, you'll see clearly that really he probably has in mind both. Because he says, I'm in this dilemma. I would rather to depart and to be with Christ, to have ultimate deliverance, and yet to remain in the flesh for your advancement in the faith so that the overflowing effect of that advancement in the faith is the joy and Jesus Christ is more needful for you. And so really to the Apostle Paul, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what happens to him because he's not concerned for himself. He's concerned that Christ is preached and not only that he's preached, but that he is exalted and honored and praised and prized and treasured. He's concerned with the glory of Christ. Now notice that Paul speaks of his deliverance in two things. Concerning two things, namely the prayers of those Philippian saints and the help of the Holy Spirit. If you look down there again, he says in verse 19, For I know that this shall turn to my deliverance through your prayer. Paul is dependent upon the prayer, the prayers of the Philippian saints. There is not going to be a significant move of God among us as a body of believers. There is not going to be a significant movement among the body of Christ in this country or in this world apart from the fervent, sincere, consistent, passionate for the glory of God prayers of God's people. God is moved, if you will, when God's children begin to pray. And Paul says that I know that the means of my deliverance is going to be partly due to your prayers for me. May I ask you this morning, 
How is your prayer life? What is the state of your personal prayer life? May I encourage you that your life, your spiritual health, everything about your life as a Christian will never rise above condition of your private prayer life? As goes the prayer of God's people, so goes the church. As go the prayers of God's people, there goes the blessings of God. One of the things that we need to realize as a church and as individual Christians is that we have not sometimes because simply we do not ask. (laughs) And Paul says that I know that the way that I'm going to be delivered, whether it's my head chopped off for the name of Christ or whether I'm released to be with you again, the way that I'm going to be ultimately or temporarily delivered from this prison is partly due to your prayers. Let me say a couple of things about prayer. Number one, prayer unleashes the movement of the providence of God. Prayer unleashes the movement of the providence of God. God is sovereign this morning. He rules the heavens. He rules the earth. He rules the nations. Even if you don't bow to Him, God's still in control. But let me ask you this. You say, well, preacher, if God's in control, then why do I have to pray? Because prayer moves God in His providential care for His children. In other words, let me say it like this. The God who has ordained the ends has also ordained the means to His ends. Does that make sense? God, who has ordained the end, the deliverance of the Apostle Paul in this case, has ordained the means to that end, namely, prayer. The church has yet, in our generations, to see the full potential of praying Christians. We need to be people of passionate, persistent prayer. James 4, 2, Ye have not because ye ask not. Oh, that we would be people of prayer. But secondly, if you'll notice, the verse goes on to say not only that it be through their prayer, but also and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, God is going to deliver Paul, and the way that he's going to do it is through the prayer of the saints, and through the supply or the help of the Holy Spirit of God. God the Holy Spirit. The power to persevere in the faith. The discernment to see the reality of the situations and the circumstances. The discernment to be able to make the decision between what is good and what is best in your life comes through the power of the presence and the help of the Holy Spirit. The strength to continue to faithfully and boldly proclaim the good news concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. The enabling, uh, the enabling necessary to magnify Christ comes through and by the indwelling presence 
of God, the Holy Spirit. You and I are dependent upon God today, and when we pray to God, it moves God and unleashes God's providential care in our life because God is not going to fail one of His children that are calling upon Him in a time of need. Do you believe that? He will not fail. And so this gets closer to the burning passion at the center of Paul's heart. And that's observation one, his deliverance. The second observation in verse 20 I want you to notice is his expectation. And here's where the curtain is fully pulled back and we begin to see the heart of the heart of Apostle Paul, his expectation. He says in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. Whether it be by life, or by death. Paul's expectation and hope is that he would not be ashamed, but that Christ would be magnified. Let's take it one at a time. Shame. Not being ashamed. What is the opposite of shame? Well, if you think about it, shame is that terrible, horrible feeling of failure. Have you ever felt it? Shame is the sense of dishonor, the sense of humiliation that you just did not measure up to what was expected of you. That's what we call shame. Whatever was expected... You didn't come through. You were supposed to come through. You were supposed to have the answer. You were supposed to succeed. But you didn't. And there's that public knowledge of the fact that you didn't come through or you didn't follow through or you didn't measure up. And so we feel shame. It's as if a little child in the school play would begin to say his lines and then, and then draw a blank. And it's that awkward time of silence in the midst of that that produces this sense of failure and shame and guilt. And the opposite of that would be to get those lines right and hear that applause. The opposite of that would be to come through, to measure up. But what is so striking about this text is that Paul says, for him, the opposite of shame is not that he would be honored, but that Christ would be honored. Not that I would be ashamed, Paul says, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. In Philippians chapter 3, we're going to see as we continue our journey through this book, we're going to see, but I want to jump there to one verse in chapter 3, verse 8, as we see the curtain completely pulled back and the passion of Paul's heart revealed. He says in verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency. And that word excellency means their surpassing value. There is a supreme and surpassing value to Paul. What is it, Paul? 
of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them all but dung, that I may win or gain Christ. Paul's one passion is the glory of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is magnified. Jesus Christ is honored, prized, and praised, and treasured. Shown to be of infinite worth because to Paul, Jesus was of infinite worth. So how is he going to live out this expectation that he would not be put to shame, but rather he would be honored in the honor and glory of Jesus Christ? Well, he's going to do that in the third and the final observation of this text this morning because the rest of the verses unfold what we're going to call his demonstration. How do you demonstrate to the world that Jesus Christ is of infinite worth? How do you do that? How do you show in relationship to possessions, in relationship to positions, in relationship to um, prominence or, or anything else in life, relationships to other people. How do you show and deal and relate to all of these things, other things in life, in such a way that they are clearly seen not to be your supreme treasure, but Christ is? That's what Paul is going to reveal in his demonstration. And I want you to notice that, first of all, he says in verse 20 at the latter part that Christ shall be magnified in his body. In his body. Have you ever thought about that? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about our bodies. (laughs) God is concerned with what you do in your body because everything that you do, you do in your body. What do you do with your hands? What do you do with your eyes? What do you do with your mind? What do you do with your feet? (laughs) What do you do with the health and the breath and the life that God has given to you? How do you move in your body? Paul says that what I want is whether I die or whether I live, I want to do it in such a way that in this body that God has given me, Christ will be magnified. Christ will be shown to be glorious and of infinite worth. If you turn with me just for a moment for a reference point on this to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I'm thinking about Romans chapter 12, where Paul says to the Christians at Rome, 
present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is His good and, and acceptable and perfect will. Present your bodies, what you do with your hands, my friend, what you do with your eyes, what you do with your mind, should all glorify, magnify, show to be be of supreme value our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll notice that this demonstration in Paul's body is going to happen in two ways, two ways. First of all, it's going to happen in showing Christ's value in life. I want you to think about this with me this morning. How do you show in your life that Christ is of infinite value to you? With your time, with your treasure, with the totality of who you are and what you are, that Christ is of infinite value. If you'll notice in verse 21, he summarizes his attitude and philosophy of life. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And then he begins in verse 22 to explain that this living is going to be fruitful labor. And then in verses 24 to 26, he takes it a step farther and says that this fruitful labor, this living being Christ, is more nece- is necessary for them. In other words, Paul is not living for himself, but he's living for the good and the betterment of others. And then in verse 25, he defines the fruit or the evidence or the product, the effect of that fruitful labor for them, that is the advance in their faith and the overflowing joy. So if you want to think about it, it happens in four steps. Let me just summarize it in four steps. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. That is, to be dedicated to fruitful labor. That is, number three, fruitful labor for your sake. So if you, want to, if you want to magnify Christ, you have to be concerned with other people, not just yourself. For your, the fruitful labor for your sake, that is, the advancement of your faith, and the effect of this faith is the overflowing joy in Christ, all to the glory and honor and praise of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. That's his argument there from verses 22 and following, that the way that Paul is going to live his life in such a way that Christ is magnified is by living for the advancement of the faith in other people. And the only way that the, the faith can be advanced in people's lives is for them to hear the gospel. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But how can they hear it except there be a preacher? There has to be some Christian somewhere who's willing to stand up and say, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about the infinite treasure of the universe. It's not a place. It's not a possession. But it is a person. His name is Jesus. He came He bled and died for for your sin, died in your place, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, sent out the gospel, and now calls men and women, boys and girls of all ages, of all times, of all places, of every kindred and nation and tongue and people to repent, to turn away from sin and to turn away from self and to put your trust and faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. Someone has to proclaim that. And Paul says, the way that I'm going to live to magnify Christ 
is to live for the advancement of faith in your life. Because faith magnifies Jesus. If you trust me, you honor me, right? If, if you say a person is trustworthy, then you honor, you magnify the trustworthiness of that object. It's no different with the faith of the Christian heart. We trust in the most and ultimately the only completely trustworthy person, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that magnifies Christ. And the result of that faith, what comes up out of faith? What comes up out of the heart of a Christian who's believing and trusting and depending upon the promises of God, all that God has said He would be for you in Christ? What comes out of that? (laughs) Irrepressible joy. That's what he says in verse 25. I will continue and abide with you all for your furtherance or advancement in the faith and the joy of faith or the joy that comes from faith. To not be a joyful Christian, (laughs) my friend, is to be living below, much below, your birthright as a Christian you should be the most joyful people on the planet because of the joy that comes from trusting and depending and treasuring and delighting in Christ I'm almost done the last point the second way that he's going to demonstrate the value of Christ is in death verse 21 he not only says to live as Christ But he also says to die is gain. Do you believe that? The reason that death seems to mess up our hopes and our dreams is because we see death as separating us from what is valuable to us. But Paul says that the most valuable thing to him is Jesus. And so to die would not be to separate him from his infinite treasure and value, but would be to bring him closer to what is the most valuable person and reality in Paul's life. To die, Paul says, is gain. So how do you magnify Christ in death? You magnify Christ in death when you believe that to die is gain because you believe that he is more valuable than life. If knowing and seeing and being close to Jesus is more valuable than your life, then you will magnify Christ when you die. More valuable than Wives and husbands and children and lands and cars and houses and degrees and bank accounts and retirements and vacations. Yes, 10,000 times more valuable. Seeing Jesus, being close to Him, bowing at His feet, 10,000 times more precious and valuable in this world and 10,000 worlds like it. 
And if you believe that this morning, if you live that way and if you die that way, you will demonstrate the value, the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 23 that to depart and to be with Christ is, you read it, far better. Far better. So here it is, summary. The goal is to live and to die in such a way that Christ and Christ alone is shown to be your supreme treasure. If Jesus is not your supreme treasure this morning, may I say something to you very frankly? You are not saved. To know Jesus Christ, to trust in Jesus Christ, is not to submit to a set of doctrines. I believe, I believe, I believe. But it is to believe the truth of the gospel and to, and to prize and, and to treasure and to love, to desire and delight in Jesus Christ. And if that's your heart today, that is biblical faith. And that kind of faith magnifies Christ, glorifies God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the close, Father, we're so thankful for the gospel for Jesus Christ, our precious Lord and Savior, the Lamb that you've sent to take away the sin of the world. Whosoever will, let him come. Come to the fountain of the water of life and drink freely, without money, without price, undeserving as we are, we fall upon the mercy of the court and say, God, forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And there is grace abundant and overflowing from your heart because in Jesus Christ, your wrath and punishment was burned out. And now all who come under the saving refuge of his blood and righteousness can be forgiven of their sins, given the gift of eternal life, and most importantly, be reconciled to you. Be brought into a peaceful, joyful relationship with you forever. To know you and make you known. Help us to do that, O oh God, in our life, in our relationships, and in our death. May Christ be magnified. In Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen.